The title of my message today is How to Know God's Will for Your Life. A lot of times, it's a lot easier to preach when Chad gives me the sermon that he wants me to preach, right? When he just says, hey, we're going through Galatians here. Take this part of Galatians. I know exactly where I've been. I know exactly where I'm going. But when he says, do what you want to do, I'm like, okay, Jesus, talk to me. So I thought about it. I'm like, you know, I could do some kind of New Year's type of sermon, whatever. And I'm like, you know what? I don't, I'm not really feeling that. I think what, what's appropriate, what I believe God was impressing upon me going into the new year and what most people want to know, what many of us need is to know what God's will is for our lives. I think a lot of times we look at God's will as something mystical or we have to use some weird or strange means in order to find that. But Paul is going to talk to us today about very practical ways in which we can discern or know what God's will is for our lives. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to have you turn to Romans chapter 12 and we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Our focus today is in Romans 12. Of course, everything leading up to chapter 12 is vitally important to what Paul is communicating in our text. But since I understand that y'all don't want to be here until one o'clock listening to me walk through Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11, I'll go ahead and skip that this morning. And instead, I'll briefly share with you the major concepts leading up to Romans 12. Specifically, I want to provide you with a list of the mercies of God that Paul lays out in the first 11 chapters. You'll understand shortly why these are essential to understanding our passage this morning. So here are the key things through, from chapters 1 through 11 of Romans that God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. First, he's given us freedom from sin's guilt and penalty. Second, he's adopted us and our identity is now in Christ. We are living under grace, not law. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have support in our suffering. We have assurance of our salvation that God has chosen us. We have anticipation of future glory. And we certainly have God's unending love as well as trust in God's ongoing faithfulness. So these are key concepts of the first 11 chapters. Now as we reach Romans 12 chapter, Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, there's a shift from what God has done to how we ought to respond. It's as if Paul is saying, given all that God has accomplished, given this great mercy we've received, how then should we live? This is where our journey begins today. It's about our response to God's mercies. Paul isn't just giving us a theory. He's calling us to action, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, to not conform to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. It's a call to life so deeply rooted in God's will that every thought, every action springs forth from a heart transformed by his grace. Let's read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual 
worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for another opportunity to stand before your people and proclaim your word, Lord God. Father, I need you. We need you desperately, Lord God. They don't need to hear Roman today. They need to hear what you have to say, Lord. So, Father, I pray that you would move me out of the way. Lord, I surrender my whole self to you this morning, Lord God. Would you speak to us? Would you use your word, Father, to set us ablaze, open our eyes to what it means to discern your will, Lord Jesus? In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah, those are my type of people. Y'all are good people. It's a Wonderful Life has always been one of my favorite movies to watch during Christmas time. Sadly, I didn't get around to watching it this year. But as I was preparing this message, I came across a note I wrote about the movie in 2018. Um, The note was about how selfless the main character, George, was in the movie. At the very start of the movie, he risks his life to save his little brother who, you know, fell into the water from a sledding accident. And that accident caused George to lose hearing in one of his ears. And throughout the movie, we continue to see this same pattern over and over again. George gives up his desires or defers his dreams and plans in order to help the people he loved fulfill theirs. As I thought about George's life, I couldn't help but see parallels with that of the Christian journey through life, particularly in the area of discerning or knowing God's will for our lives. How so, you might ask. Well, I'm glad you did, even though you didn't. Imagine with me, if you will, what it must have been like to be in George's shoes. George wanted to travel the world and have grand adventures, as he called them. But instead, he never leaves Bedford Falls. He takes over his father's struggling savings and loan or building and loan to keep the greedy old Mr. Potter from getting his hands on it, right? George wanted to go to college and get a higher education. But after his father dies, George gives up his college fund to send his little brother, Harry, to college. And of course, George is thinking when Harry finished college, he'll come back and he'll take over the family business and then... I'll be able to go and get my life started. But that's not what happened. Instead, Harry goes and becomes this big war hero, right? And never comes and takes over the building and loan. So George also wanted to be an architect and build skyscrapers. But instead, he's living in a house that looks like a haunted mansion that everyone in the neighborhood throws rocks at. Lastly, George dreamed of being rich and successful. But instead, he struggles to make ends meet throughout the movie. And to add insult to injury, George's absent-minded Uncle Billy accidentally gives an envelope with $8,000 to Mr. Parter that needed to be deposited before the bank examiner came in order to keep the building and loan from going bankrupt. Of course, Mr. Potter keeps the money because he's evil. And George, not knowing this in his desperation, goes to Mr. Potter for a loan 
in which Mr. Potter informs George that his life insurance policy makes him worth more dead than alive. Now that's cold-blooded. So what is the point of me telling you about it's a horrible life? I mean, it's a wonderful life. The point is this. From George's perspective, he had missed every opportunity to have the life that he always dreamed of. And I believe if we're honest, many of us are living with that same perspective. What's funny is that even as I watch this movie year after year, already knowing the ending, I still find myself sorry for George. I'm always watching the movie feeling so sorry for poor old George Bailey, probably because I watched the movie like George Bailey is a Charlie Brown figure. And, you know, nothing ever goes right for Charlie Brown. Good grief. Poor George is, is such a good guy who just couldn't catch a break. In the words of Charlie Brown, oh, brother. When, in fact, the very title of the movie tells us that we shouldn't feel bad for George because he had a wonderful life all along. Never thought about that. You see, the problem wasn't that George had a terrible life. The problem is that George thought he had a terrible life. If, we would have been, if he would have been able to change his thinking or renew his mind, he would have been able to see that he was already living his best life or walking in God's will for his life the whole time. When considering the will of God, we frequently bring some common misconceptions to the table with us. One of them is this idea that if you choose wrong, then you've blew it and you'll never recover because you missed your one chance to walk in God's will for your life. Which college should I go to, God? This one or that one? I know if I choose wrong, I'll, I'll never have that career I want. I'll, I'll never make enough money. Which job should I take, Lord? If I choose wrong, I, I won't be able to support my family and I won't find fulfillment in my work, Lord. Is this the person you want me to marry? If I choose wrong, I'll be miserable and possibly end up divorced and broken like so many others I've seen, Lord. I've got to get this right or my life is over. A big problem with this way of thinking is that it makes God's will dependent on our ability to make right choices. You can barely decide what you want to eat for dinner today, but you think God would allow your choices to derail his plans. This is a terrible way to think about God's will. In case you've forgotten, we serve a God who turns our messes into messages and our tests into testimonies. Amen. We serve a God of not only second chances, but sometimes thirds, fourths, and fifths, right? Or how about this one, thinking that because you are walking in God's will, nothing bad should ever happen to you, and everything should go smoothly. I've been guilty of that one. I've been guilty of that one a lot, especially when working on a car. You ever worked on a car? I remember some nights in tears underneath my car. This ain't even in my message. But just thinking about that. I mean, in tears, coming in at 12, 1 in the morning, it's like, God, why won't anything work for me? Right? It's an attitude to easily adopt. It's saying to God, Lord, I've been doing everything a good Christian is supposed to do, so why are so many bad things happening to me? Lord, why are all the wicked people having a great time in life? seeming to have no worries 
while I'm doing my best to live right but keep getting beat down. Let me ask you this. Was the Apostle Paul walking in God's will for his life? Yes. Did his life go smoothly all the time? No. The man was continually beaten, stoned, chased, and imprisoned throughout his ministry. But yet, we all know that he was walking in God's will. You see, this is where what we really believe gets exposed in life. We too often preach something different than what we actually practice. We talk about a bloody, crucified, cross-bearing Savior that paid it all for us, and we willingly identify with him in our victories. Yet we fail to practice a sacrificial, cross-carrying lifestyle when it comes time to identify with Christ in his sufferings. This is a whole other sermon. But as I've gone on this journey, I realize that we need a better theology of suffering. I really do. Because we perceive all suffering many times as something that God is against us. But suffering is just a part of the Christian walk. It comes with it. He tells us throughout scripture that we identify with him in his suffering. If our master suffered, what makes us think that we won't? This morning, let's allow the Apostle Paul to provide us with the blueprint for discerning God's will for our lives. Because grasping God's will is crucial to our journey as Christians. It calls for a transformation in how we live, which is deeply rooted in the truths of God's word. So point number one, to know God's will, we must offer ourselves as living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul starts with a call to action. He's like, based on all the good stuff that God has done for you, here's what you should do. And then he introduces this idea of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that might sound a bit intense at first, but in the Old Testament, sacrifices were about bringing animals to the altar as offerings to God. But here, Paul flips the script. He's not talking about animals any longer. He's talking about us, our whole selves, our entire beings. When, we, when he says living sacrifice, he's saying First, that the sacrifice is living because it's brought to the altar. And second, the sacrifice is living because it stays alive at the altar. So first, it's living because it's brought to the altar alive. And second, the sacrifice is living because it stays alive at the altar. This is ongoing, not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing process. This is a whole new way of looking at how our lives looking at how we live our lives. It's not about a one-time offering. It's about our entire being, life being an offering to God. It means living in a way that shows we belong to him, whether that's in how we talk, how we treat people, or how we handle our day-to-day stuff. It's about making choices that honor God, showing respect and love to others, and using our gifts and talents in ways that please him. The words Paul uses here in regards to sacrifice usually refers to the burnt offerings in the Old Testament. Remember also that when the priests performed burnt offerings, the entire sacrifice was given to the Lord. In some sacrifices, the one offering, the sacrifice, and the priest shared in some of the meals. So some of those sacrifices, they would actually partake of it. 
but never with the burnt offerings. In other words, as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, God makes our life holy by burning away the impurities. We are on that altar being burned, burning away the sin of our lives. This idea of being holy and acceptable to God, it's about living in a way that's clean and right in God's eyes. It's not about being perfect, but it's about striving for perfection, asking for forgiveness when we mess up, and always aiming to do better. Paul wraps it up by calling this our spiritual worship. The term spiritual can also be translated as reasonable or rational. It means that Such living is a logical response to God's mercy and is an act of worship. So basically, it only makes sense to live this way in light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's a key point. Worship isn't just about singing songs on Sunday. It's about how we live every single day. Our actions, our decisions, our whole life can be an act of worship showing our love and gratitude to God for all that he's done. So Romans 12, 1 is really a call to a different kind of life, a life that's lived fully for God, showing our thanks to him, not just in words, but in how we live every moment. What does it mean to present ourselves to God? Let's look at Romans 6, 13. Romans 6, 13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. When Paul talks about your members, he means every part of ourselves, our heart, our minds, our hands, our feet, our whole being. He's telling us not to use any part of ourselves to do evil. But Paul doesn't stop with don't do this. He gives us a powerful do this instead. He tells us to present ourselves to God. Picture this as an act of giving yourself entirely to God, saying, here I am, Lord, use me. It's a complete turnaround. Scripture tells us that when we become believers, we move from a place of spiritual death to a place of spiritual life. At one time, sin ruled over us, and we obeyed whatever the flesh demanded. But now through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to live lives that are pleasing to God. It's about being active in our faith, choosing every day to live as people changed by God's love. This is what Paul is urging us to do, to be instruments for righteousness, tools in God's hands, doing the things that reflect his goodness and love. Let's explore what it means to live as a holy sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. Through him, then let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. First, through him, that's through Jesus. We're reminded that It's through Jesus' sacrifice that we even have the privilege of approaching God. Now we're invited to offer our own sacrifices, but not the kind you might think of. We're not talking about altars and burnt offerings here. Our sacrifice, according to this verse, is praise. It's the words we speak, the recognition and acknowledgement of God's name, 
and his work in our lives. This is the fruit of our lips, a continual offering of gratitude and acknowledgement of who God is and what he's done. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't stop at our words. He moves on to our actions. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. This is about our deeds, how we live out our faith in practical ways, sharing what we have, doing good. These are sacrifices pleasing to God. It's a reminder that our faith isn't just about what we say. It's deeply about what we do. It's about generosity and kindness and practical love. This passage calls us to a lifestyle where our words and actions come together to create a living sacrifice pleasing to God. It's about making our whole life a testament to his goodness and mercy. As I thought about this idea of my whole self being surrendered to God, I remembered this story about D.L. Moody that I heard once, and I'm going to share that with you. Dwight L. Moody was a shoe salesman from Chicago who fell in love with Jesus and started sharing his faith with everyone he met. Even though he was never ordained or had formal training, God used him to reach thousands for Christ as an evangelist. There was a group of British pastors who were planning a crusade, and the name of D.L. Moody came up as a possible preacher. One British pastor said with skepticism, why do we need this Mr. Moody? He's unordained, uneducated, and inexperienced. Who does he think he is? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? But another wiser pastor who heard D.L. Moody preach responded, Mr. Moody doesn't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. Amen and hallelujah. Yes, this is essentially what Paul is saying to us in Romans 12.1. A statement like this can only be said of someone who has decided in his heart to present his life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I want, I want this to be said about me one day. I would hope that people would be able to say that about me, and I think you would hope that you'd be able to hear that about you, that God had a hold of that man or woman's life. That's what we essentially want, right? Because when we're in line with what God wants for our lives, then we can more easily discern what he wants from those lives. So how do we apply this? First, begin your day by consciously dedicating it to God, asking God to guide your actions and decisions. Look for opportunities to use your gifts and talents in ways that serve others and honor God, such as volunteering at church or participating in community service. This is why I asked Ginger to include information about how to find out what your spiritual gift is in our bulletin today. Knowing how God uniquely designed you will help you see where you fit within the body and how you can love and serve others with your gifts. Not knowing your purpose leaves room for abuse. Why do I say this? The word abuse has two root words, abnormal and use, meaning if you aren't seeking to understand how God wants to use you, you'll find yourself in places being abnormally used because your gifting is not for that position. You need to know how God has wired you in order to walk in his will. To say it simply, if you're not good with money, we don't need you to be the treasurer. If you don't know how to cook, get out the kitchen. 
If you're not nice to people, don't be a greeter. It's pretty simple, right? Point number two, transformation through renewal of the mind is key to understanding God's will. Transformation through the renewal of the mind is key to understanding God's will. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. First off, Paul tells us, don't go with the flow of the world. He's talking about the world's way of doing things. You know, the chase after money, power, women, drugs, and everything in between, right? He's warning us not to get sucked into living life like everyone else, especially when it doesn't line up with what he wants. Then he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This isn't just tweaking a few habits. It's about a complete makeover from the inside. It's letting God change the way you think and see. This is what we mean when we say you have a biblical worldview, meaning you see the things of life through the lens of Scripture. This transformation happens when we dive into the Bible and spend time in prayer and hang out with other believers. It's about letting God reshape our thoughts and attitudes. And and here's the kicker. He says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. This isn't just about knowing what God wants, but actually living it out in real life. When our minds are in tune with God, we start to understand what he wants from us. The stuff that's good, that pleases him, and that's perfect for us. Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When our hearts and minds are kingdom-focused, we are essentially tuned in to the right frequency to discern or understand what God desires of us. If you desire to know God's will for your life, you must also reject worldly conformity. James 4.4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When James talks about friendship with the world, he's not saying we should shun everything and everyone. Instead, he's pointing to a mindset, an alignment of values. The world, as it's used here, represents ways of thinking and living that go against God's truths, priorities, ambitions, and practices that are in conflict with God's ways. James is challenging us to consider where our loyalties lie. Are our lives marked by pursuits and values that are celebrated by the world, but at odds with God's teaching? He's urging us to look at our lives and ask, do these choices, relationships, and actions draw me closer to God or push me further away? And these are questions that we must ask ourselves regularly. If you've ever seen or been in a treatment or been to a treatment program, one of the things that they say commonly is people, places, and things. And they ain't never lied because bad company corrupts good morals, correct? That's important. This isn't about withdrawing from society. Rather, it's about living in the world but not being of it. It's a call to live lives that are distinctly different in our values and actions. 
marked by God's love and righteousness. Being a friend of the world in this context means adopting a way of life that ignores or even opposes God's principles. James is clear. This kind of friendship is at odds with the life devoted to God. So this verse serves as a wake-up call to us, reminding us that our primary allegiance is to God and our lives should reflect his character and values, even if that sets us apart from the popular culture. Knowing God's will for your life also requires you to embrace spiritual renewal. Ephesians 4.23 says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And if you look at that in Greek, it's basically saying, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. When Paul talks about being renewed in the spirit of your minds, he's pointing us towards a radical transformation that begins from within. It's not just about changing our thoughts on a surface level. It's about a complete overhaul of how we perceive and understand the world, ourselves, and God. This renewal is an inward work of the Holy Spirit, changing us from the inside out. This isn't a one-time event. It's an ongoing process. Being renewed in the spirit of our minds means continually allowing God's word and spirit to shape our thinking, our values, and our worldview. It's about letting go of old patterns, the ways of thinking that were part of our life before Christ, and embracing a new way that aligns with God's word and righteousness. This renewal is transformative. It changes how we react to challenges, how we interact with others, and how we make decisions. It's the kind of change that affects every aspect of our lives, making us more like Christ in our thoughts and actions. And as I think about that, I've thought about what God has challenged me to do recently. Um, After I did the sermon in Galatians, that sermon really sparked something in my own heart about the way that I need to move in life. You see, I'm not the glass half full guy. I'm not the glass half empty guy. I'm the guy that I ain't even got a glass a lot of times. Like, I, I can be very negative in my thinking, meaning I don't expect good things to happen. Like, some people live and they're just, I just know today's going to be a great day. And I'm like, is it? That's just, it's just not my disposition. It's not the way that God wired me. But after doing that sermon in Galatians and, and seeing that the main idea or the main point was to love God and to serve others, to love God and to serve others. And that thought just kept sticking in my mind. And I said, you know what? What if I actually practice what I preach? And instead of before I get ready to go to work and think about how these people are going to get on my nerves And you can say amen, because I know you got somebody at your job that gets on your nerves. Instead of doing that, I said, Lord, I'm going to pray and set my heart and mind before I go to work to how can I love and serve the people I work with. When you walk in a door and your heart's posture is how can I serve you, it's kind of difficult to be petty. When it's how can I love you, it's a lot harder to be fake. And, and, and I see what God is doing through that. We don't, we don't often realize how much the way we think affects everything. And my wife is so much better at this than I am. She's usually the one who tells me when I'm going that way and should go back this way. 
She, she's able to do that much better than me, to see the good in life, to, to approach life with an attitude that God is good and it's going to be all right. And I thank God for that, for that balance. So how do we apply this? We, we commit to renewing our mind through regular Bible study and prayer. It's really not super hard to renew your mind. You, you find out, you know God, you learn his will, all of these things from reading the Bible. But if somebody comes to you when you're in a hard position and says, read your Bible and pray, you look at them like they were supposed to give you something else. I mean, just be honest. You're like, oh, man, uh, you're going through that? Oh, uh, you lost your job? I think you should read your Bible and pray. Right? What you mean read my Bible? I ain't got a job. I'm going to make money. Read the Bible. Trust that God's word will guide you into the next step. Trust that God is speaking through his word. We got to stop looking at these weapons that we have as if they're not weapons. I find this so often when I talk to people. I'm like, did you pray about it? Did you, see, did you look through the scriptures about that situation? You go, nope, 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 nope. Oh, okay. Well, it's working out just how it's supposed to, isn't it? But anyway, point number three, discerning and applying God's will requires dedicating every part of your life to God. Discerning and applying God's will requires dedicating every part of your life to God. One of the most important tools God uses to help us know his will for our lives is his word. Let's explore this. Understanding God's will through his word. Psalms 143 verse 10. Teach me to do your will for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. The psalmist begins with a request. Teach me to do your will. It's an acknowledgement that understanding and following God's will isn't something we naturally grasp. It requires divine teaching and guidance. This line is a humble admission of our need for God's direction in every aspect of our lives. The psalmist then identifies the source of his teaching. For you are my God. This is a statement of relationship and devotion. It's not just any God he's asking for guidance from, but his God, the one he has a personal, committed relationship with. This personalizes the plea, making it not just a request for instructions, but a deeper communion with God. So he's not saying, Lord, just give me what to do, which is what we usually want, right? When we're praying, God, what's your will for our life? You want him to say, I want you to go work at Kroger's and I need you to go see the manager at three o'clock and they're going to give you the job for sure and you'll be in the warehouse and that's exactly my will for you. That's what we want, but that's not how it works. How, how often has God done that for you? Got any hands? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's about drawing closer to God. If I'm in God's presence, that's more precious to me than needing to know exactly what it is that I need to do. Because if I'm in alignment with him, then I know that he's leading me into what I need to do. He says, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Here the psalmist is asking for the Holy Spirit's guidance to bring stability and clarity in his walk. The level ground implies a life not tossed by every wind of circumstances or confusion, but instead stabilized 
and steadied by the truth and guidance of God's spirit. So this verse is a prayer we all can echo. It's, it's about seeking God's will through a close relationship with him, relying on his spirit to guide us through life's complexities and challenges. It's a reminder that our journey with God is about continual learning, guided by the Holy Spirit, and walking in his ways with confidence and peace. Another essential component needed when seeking God's will is to not only study to show thyself approved, but to actually live what it is we are learning. We must live out God's will in our everyday life. Colossians three seventeen, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This verse is a comprehensive call to Christ-centered living. First, whatever you do in word or deed, Paul isn't leaving anything out. He's saying that every single thing we say and do should be considered. It's not just about our Sunday's best or our prayer time. It's every word that comes out of our mouths, every action we take in our daily lives, big or small. Then the verse says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is about representing Jesus in all that we do. It means our actions and words should reflect Jesus's teachings and character. Doing something in the name of the Lord is like putting his stamp of approval on it. It's asking ourselves, would this please Jesus? Does this reflect his love, his truth, his grace? And don't miss the last part, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is about maintaining an attitude of gratitude. It's recognizing that everything we do is made possible through Jesus Christ and is done for God's glory. This isn't just about moral behavior. It's about living a life of worship and thankfulness where everyday actions become expressions of gratitude towards God. So Colossians 3.17 challenges us to live fully for Christ, making our entire lives, our words, our actions a living testament to him. It's about aligning our daily walk so closely with Jesus that our lives become a continuous act of worship and thanksgiving to God. Unfortunately, Every time I think about this story or share this particular story, I cry. Hopefully I don't this morning. Um, But as I thought about that verse, as I thought about what this means, I thought about a family who recently lost their 12-year-old son. It's a friend of my son's from basketball. They've gone through basketball all these years, and unfortunately... um, the young boy passed away from a tragic accident at, at his home. And through this process, the, the father started to journal his thoughts. So he put out his raw thoughts for everybody to read. And so I had an opportunity to go read what was called his caring bridge. And I, as I read that, I was blown away by his faith, by the faith of the family, by by their strength, by their, their standing in the midst of this. I can't even imagine the pain that they're experiencing. But there was a part in what he wrote where he sees his son laying lifeless in the hospital. 
And the first words out of his mouth were, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus, that's faith. That's a life that's in alignment with God. That's a heart and a mind that is surrendered to Jesus. That comes from a depth of relationship to be able to say that. That's not somebody following ritualistic rules, thinking that these are getting them to God. This is someone, these are people who have said, God, it's all yours. And that's what God's calling us to be. A people that says, God, it's all yours. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to bring. God, it's all yours. I belong to you. My mind, my heart, my life, my children, my possessions. It's all yours, Jesus. Steward it as you see fit. How do we apply this? We we strive to apply God's will in every aspect of our lives. This means making choices that align with God's teachings. Being a witness of his love and grace in your interactions with others. And actively seeking his guidance in all that you do. Regularly assess how your lifestyle and decisions and relationships reflect your commitment to following God's will. So as we wrap up our time in Romans 12, let's grasp this truth. Understanding and living out God's will isn't about finding hidden messages or waiting for signs. It's about a real, active change in our lives. Paul has laid it out plainly. It's about giving ourselves to God, changing how we think, and living his truth every day. This isn't a call to easy living. It's a call to meaningful, purposeful living. Every day in the small tasks and the big decisions, we are to show the world what it means to follow Christ. It's in the way we talk, the way we treat others, and the choices we make. It's in our homes, our workplaces, and our communities. To bring things full circle, remember at the introduction I talked about the challenges faced in the life of the character George from the movie It's a Wonderful Life. I want you to think about the following in light of what we learned about discerning the will of God for our lives. So we learned that George's dream was to travel the world and have great adventures. But he never leaves Bedford Falls, and he lives a life out there. But as a result of that, here's the positive outcome. By staying, George kept the building and loan afloat, provided affordable housing and financial support for poor people in the town of Bedford Falls. So him not getting to do what he wanted blessed a whole community. He wanted a higher education. He wanted to go off to college. But instead, he stayed, took the family's business, gave his college money to his brother. But what was the positive outcome? His brother didn't come back and do what he wanted him to do and take over the business, but his brother served his country and blessed how many hundreds and thousands of people by serving in that capacity? He wanted to build skyscrapers. George wanted to be an architect. But he ended up just living in a broke-down house, running the savings and loans. But what was the positive outcome? George's work ensured that many people in that town could afford homes 
and, a sense, and have a sense of community. He wanted a life of wealth. He constantly faced financial struggles instead. But what was the positive outcome? The crisis provided an opportunity for George to see how much he was loved and valued by his community. All the community came together and raised the money that he needed. And love was outpoured on him that he never thought was even there for him when he wanted to kill himself. Of course we know that this is a movie, right? But movies are drawn from real life. So there's a lot of lessons that we can learn there. What if you were able to see your life laid out as a movie? Isn't this what we would see in the life of a born-again believer? We would see the hand of a loving God guiding us and providing what is best for us in every circumstance. How many times are there in your life that you are grateful you didn't take the opportunity that was in front of you? But you were grateful later when you saw that things didn't turn out the way that you thought they would, but God kept you from that, even though it was a good thing. You see, the, the, the devil's in the good things sometimes, right? It's, it's, it's kind of hard if a person's really walking with the Lord to, to tempt them with something just pure evil, right? You'll get distracted by good things sometimes. Sometimes a good decision will come your way, but it's not a God decision, right? Every good decision is not a God decision. How often have you made decision A or B after taking the appropriate steps to discern God's will and things still turned out disastrous? Probably a bunch of times. Do our choices matter? Yes, of course they do. Making poor decisions that are not in alignment with the word of God may very well lead you into some unnecessary suffering. However, I can say with nearly absolute certainty that you will experience some form of suffering regardless of the choices you make. Matthew 5.45 says, For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We must stop viewing the Christian life as transactional. If I do this, God must do this. No, God is God. He does what he wants to do in accordance with who he is. One of God's major attributes is his goodness, meaning that God's very nature is good. So for him to act in any way other than good is to violate his goodness, and God never contradicts himself. You see, that's part of the problem with trusting in God's will is that some of us need to repent because we think that what God wants for us is something not good. Some of us need to repent. Some of us won't give God that blank check and say, Lord, have what you will with my life because you don't trust that God will lead you in places that are good for you. If that's you, repent of that because we serve a good God. And if I open my arms and say, God, take me where you want, you better believe that anywhere he takes me is where I'm supposed to be, and it's exactly the thing that I need. We have to trust that his way is the best. Like, oh, if I give God this blank check, he's going to send me to Africa. So what if he does? He's going to prepare you for Africa. He's going to put Africa in your heart. He's going to do everything that needs to be necessary for that to be for you, right? Because it's for you. Believer, if you've taken the steps to discern God's will that Paul has laid out for us in Romans 12, you have placed yourself in a position to choose and choose well. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires 
of your heart. Meaning, when we set our hearts and minds on finding their full satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone, God grants us the desires of our hearts. Because our desires are now in line with what he desires for us. God loves to give his children the things that he loves. When all hell is breaking loose in our lives, we may find it difficult to reconcile these truths with how we feel. But we must reject our feelings when they contradict God's word. We must choose to believe with Paul, as he says in Romans 8.28, that all Things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are the call according to his purpose. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then all the good things as well as all the bad things that enter your life are there for the purpose of forming you to the image of Christ. So stop looking at your challenges every time as if something that's going to crush you. But see those challenges as an opportunity to step into what God wants to do. You know, we want to see awesome things of God, these big moves of God, these spectacular displays of God. But we won't get off the couch. He does all of that when we align our lives with him and step out in faith. And he works in that. Praise the Lord for that. So, believer, in a simple, very simple way. Align your life with Jesus and the choices that you make will be in align with Jesus. And then you won't have to worry about making the wrong decision. In a very simple form, if I'm aligned with Christ, walking in his will, I can make decision A or B. And God's still going to work it out for my good. This is the truth of scripture. For the unbeliever, if you don't know Jesus, I'm always going to give an appeal to those in this room who don't know Jesus Christ. Do you want to walk in purpose? Do you want to know what God has for your life? Well, first you must surrender it to Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, for my sins, for our sins. And he says that all you have to do is believe and confess and trust in him. It's a free gift. So if there's anyone under the sound of my voice this morning who has not made that decision for Christ, do not delay. I don't know how many times that appeal has gone forth and maybe you sat in your seat with your feet in in cement, worried about what somebody might think or worried about this or worried about that. But guess what? It's your soul. It's your life at stake. Don't let what anyone else thinks or feels about what you're doing stop you from getting in the presence of Jesus, stop you from knowing who God is. With that, I'm going to ask our choir to come forward. I'm going to stand down front, and if there's anyone who doesn't know Jesus and wants to give their life to him today, I would love to talk to you about that. If there's anybody who would like to be a member of our church, I would love to talk to you about that. If there's anybody who needs prayer, I would love to pray with you this morning. I would love to use that tool that God has given me on your behalf this morning. So as I stand here, if anyone would like to come, please feel free. Feel no shame in Jesus' name. Amen.